Uh, and we watched a lot. That's the thing is we have a big pile of stuff to talk about this week. I only watched like three things. What did you watch? I watched four things. I think you watched four things too because we watched yeah. three. We streamed. Well, it's all new because neither of us has seen the feature before right. either. I saw Josie and the Pussycats, The Lodge, oh, yeah. and the half of it. I forgot about that. Yes. Um, it was so fun. It was fun. You know what? Spoiler alert. I think it's my favorite of the, those first three. Is it really? Uh, I mean, that's no, I have mixed feelings on all of them, but I think I have the least complicated feelings on Josie and the Pussycats. I don't love it or anything, but it's it, it knows what it is better than the other ones, too. Yes. So, I mean, I'm aware of this title, but I didn't really realize that this was kind of out of the Archie universe. Right. And I was a big fan of the Christian Archie comic I books. I remember those. Remember yeah. those? Yes. Anyway, so just to see the cover of the Archie styled faces, which I myself was an expert in drawing when I was in fourth mm. and fifth grade. That was what was on my binders and everything was Christian Archie characters. <laughs> you have kind of an Archie look yourself. Not <laughs> the you. character Archie, but the universe. You'd fit in. Yeah, I would fit in in the Archie universe. I would love living there. Anyway, I guess this movie was critically dismissed and maligned at the time when it came out. But I think it was maybe a little ahead of its time. I thought that it was kind of funny. It was over long and not all that creative. The product placement was a joke that just went on way too long. I wondered if that maybe needed to be laid on thick at the time. I remember when 30 Rock would do the self-referential product placements in like the mid 2000s and it took me a little bit to understand what they were talking about and so i think i must have been completely clueless in 2001 to movies doing that so maybe it needed to be um that way but anyway world had a huge single gag Mm. if you recall and that's late 90s wayne's world or is it early 90s early because that was before my time so they did a big thing where they were like they just mentioned product placement and then turn and drink a Coke, like a dumb, obvious joke. But at the time, that was fourth wall breaking lunacy. Yeah. Well, then I guess I'm just out of the loop on this. So this but is this movie definitely takes it to new heights. And you feel like it's the kind of the whole movie has that kind of creepy feeling of of satire, but not really. But kind of if you, you're you're welcome to take it either way. Yeah, I took it as satire. I enjoy it more than, say, Spice World. That it's that you could compare it to in a lot of ways. Yeah, I thought there was a little more warmth and coherence <laughs> than than Spice World. I'm not sure really what it was trying to say in the end uh, that people who are evil and just out to make money really just have a a problem with their upbringing and they have some trauma they need to process and then they'll be back to being human again. I don't know, but right. anyway, we've got these three friends and a very formulaic plot where they are a band who out of nowhere finds fame um, out of some sort of nefarious purposes by uh, manager Alan Cumming. And uh, Parker Posey's the head of this record label. So we've got Rachel Lee Lee Cook as Josie and Tara Reid, remember her, as Melody. uh, Rosario Dawson as Valerie. I mean, to me, this was a perfectly fine way to spend two hours it was over long and i got a little bored by the end but there's way worse movies than this and it's certainly not a disaster yeah 
It's a movie that would not have been on my radar at the time, or I would have turned my nose up. And now I don't have any of those like allegiances or feelings or whatever that is. So uh, it was perfectly fine. It's really dumb. Oh, and yeah. there's, and, uh, but, and it was kind of weird for me because it, it straddles that line between being kind of like reboot of intellectual property for today's tweens and almost at certain points, like Austin Powers level yeah. farce. Like it, it, and some of it's legitimately funny and most of it is just kind of like really dumb, but you love the cast. You love to see the people. I, I think I said erroneously last week that Richard E. Grant was in the movie, but I think that's because I saw his name invoked as the um, he's in Spice World and mm, Alan Cumming is kind of in his role in this movie. Alan Cumming isn't in Spice World. Uh, it seems like he should be as well, right? <laughs> Maybe they're both in Spice World. Is that right, possible? <laughs> yeah, because when you said that, I just had kind of like a strange paradigm shift of thinking, have I thought that was Alan Cumming all these years? Maybe. I don't care enough to look it up. Right. <laughs> I like the dumb, the boy band stuff. That's yeah, that for me funny. when it's like actually satire that made me laugh. Du jour. Their name is Du jour, which is Perfect. funny. And all, and a bunch of funny dudes in the yeah. playing the parts. And uh, I don't know. I dug it. Very strange that I wonder when they all came back and they were in body cast, except for, I don't know, which one, Brecken Meyer or whoever it was, but. Uh-huh. If they just couldn't afford to get everybody to get them back. back. Yeah. Uh, Tara Reed met Carson Daly and they had a relationship for several oh. months and an engagement af- as a result of meeting for that dumb scene. That's special. Yeah. And Rachel Lee Cook, she has worked consistently since 1995 with a cre- almost a credit a year into ni- 2017. Wow. I, yeah. and, and a lot of television work up to 2020. I am. I have not known her, I don't think. Yeah, I recognize her, and I'm sure if I took the time to look at her, well, I do have the IMDb page open. One of my things is, and it's nothing against her, I just don't think she makes a great Josie. Because Mm -hmm. you've got Rosario Dawson as the badass, and that's pretty good casting. You've got Tara Reid as the dummy, and she's, I mean, I guess she's supposed to be the nice, wholesome one, but I would have liked her to be a little more goofy. She was just kind of like bland lead. Yeah, she was kind of the known. the serious person at the center of all the kind of fools. Yeah. Right? She's yeah. supposed to be the audience's lens. Yeah, but if just the, all the stuff about being a small town band. Oh, that's another thing I didn't like is the music, which that seems like a silly thing to say. But even the, the animated show had incredibly catchy songs. And I thought the music was incredibly bland and samey. And it didn't establish them as a band very much. And I realize I'm saying this about Josie and the Pussycats, but it would have been nice if they just had some kind of like music that represented them and their relationship that was then, you know, besmirched by the the producers or whatever. But whatever, that's asking too much, I would imagine. Yeah, there was nothing unique about them, which kind of ironically plays into the show's whole, the movie's whole, whole premise that there's nothing special about any of these groups. It doesn't matter who you put on the stage as long as they're, you know, what promoted in the right way. And yeah. yet that's exactly what happened. It's kind of like this band didn't have anything special, didn't have a special sound or a special song or uh, talent. It's not like they're untalented, but they weren't especially talented. Right. It's. I realize it's not made in the '90s, but it's a good '90s nostalgia movie. Good to you know, 
uh, it's made in the nineties, probably right. It came out in two thousand. Two thousand one is the date on it, but I don't oh, know when okay. it was made. So, from more innocent times, right up to the wire. Um, what else? Uh, Missy Pyle's in it. I like Missy Pyle. She's always fun. Who'd uh, she play? She was the. Um, she's recognizable from a lot of Tim Burton movies and stuff. She was. Uh, her character was Alexandra. She was kind of the, the boyfriend's sister or the the manager's sister oh, who was the, always hanging. I around. was in the comic book. Yes, right. That's right, the right. best line in the movie. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, that's uh, Josie and the Pussycats. What are you going to say? Yes. Do for a reboot, I would say. Yeah. It'll be real bad if they made one now. Who would they even cast? I couldn't tell you. Oh, I don't know. I shudder to think. I think the second and uh, only other film by this directing team, a uh, male-female directing team like one of our other films we're going to discuss today. Hmm. Um, let's see. And the other movie they made was Can't Hardly Wait. Anyway, check it out or don't. That's a great recommendation. We have other streaming titles to talk about. What's next? Um, I put forth uh, the half of it and you recommended The Lodge, or at least you told me that you watched The Lodge. (laughs) So what's next? I guess it's my turn to describe one. So let's do the half of it. That's it. Uh, the half of it, speaking of people who only directed two movies, is a film by Alice Wu, whose only uh, previous title was the uh, indie darling Saving Face uh, from 2004. So she took a 16-year wow. break and, with, and t- made another similarly autobiographical movie about a, a young woman named ellie chu alice Wu wrote about ellie chu which is a version of herself not a direct like autobiography but this is basically a what if we did a fun indie twee twist on cyrano but it's also more personal than that i don't think it's a straight up telling of cyrano it just uses that hook where a young uh, girl it's about high school kids and ellie chu is um a kind of an outsider. She's uh, into music and poetry. She's smarter than most of her classmates. She writes their essays for them for 20 bucks a pop. And the teacher knows about it and is okay with it. Cause she doesn't want to read what the kids would write. Uh, and basically she helps a jock write a letter to a girl with whom she herself happens to be kind of obsessed. And it's about the twists and turns of those relationships and that triangle kind of, but the girl is dating someone else dan i thought this movie was very well intentioned and very nice and i liked it uh to a degree i thought the writing was a little i thought everybody was super clever and cute even the jock is like funny and and eloquent when he needs to be i did like the portrayal of like someone learning to be intellectually curious um i thought that it i my, initially my complaint was that the way it all everything comes out in the end and the way everything lands I thought was less than satisfying from a story perspective, but then walking away from the movie, I thought, well, that's kind of how life is. And if this is about young people, it doesn't really make sense in a young people, romantic comedy when people end up together, because that's not usually like the end of the story when you're young. So I guess I'm okay with the way things worked out. My only other big thought is I didn't think that the character of Aster was very well fleshed out. She's kind of a repressed uh, product of 
what seemed to be fundamentalist Catholicism. And, but she's also brilliant and watches Vim Vendor's movies. And I just felt like I, we never got inside of that character's self and head um, in a way that made me understand things better. Anyway, I'm gabbing about this movie, Dan. What did you think of the half of it? Well, big picture, I enjoyed it. I think that Cyrano is notoriously difficult to adapt. And I think as a sort of adaptation of it, this was a good idea. And I think it was creative in how could we do this premise today? I thought that was mm-hmm. that was well done. As you had just brought up, this movie is desperately in need of a religious consultant. <laughs> I I was thinking, well, he has a family, so they must be Episcopal. And then I'm Googling Episcopal confessionals. Mm-hmm. And and I didn't get anything except that you can res- you can go to confession to a priest or to a, a member of your church, but it doesn't talk about the confessional thing. And so I agree right. that of the three main characters, Aster is the least developed. And I wasn't sure what her motivation was throughout. Why would she meet this other guy on a date when she's in a relationship with a boy she thinks she's going to marry? Why is that going on? Right. And it never minds that tension on her end. Right. The guy does confront Ellie, but it never, he doesn't know about Paul. He doesn't care. Yeah, it's very strange. Right. And so I thought, well, what's that about? I thought there was a lot of non-consensual things that happen and uh, of things that could happen. I guess these are kind of tame, but the amount of times that characters just go in to kiss another out of nowhere (laughs) and, and unwelcomed was uncomfortable to me. I... I guess it was alluded to that Aster might have been bisexual and might have been interested. I guess the scene at the hot spring sort of brings us to a, a, you know, it's an intimate conversation the two of them share, but I wasn't quite sure what the rules were in that. I wasn't sure where the characters were coming from, which to me was a weakness. I think that I thought it was over about three times, Mm -hmm. which is a trajectory problem. I think that, you know, that could have been an ending. Oh, that could have been an end. No. Oh, is this the ending? And I, and I felt like it was maybe it could have been cut down a little bit. All yeah. of those gripes aside, I liked the relationships between the characters. There was a warmth and a sweetness and a care. I liked the conversations that she had with her father. I liked when the guy shows up and teaches him how to make those tacos. I thought that was cute. Um, the dramatic climax at the church i did not yeah. like that scene at all because it was worse than a hallmark movie i thought <laughs> that you could have gotten to that place it story-wise without that horrible scene yeah and i understand yeah. stuff that's sometimes heightened and ridiculous and that can be funny but we weren't going for laughs here why is that right. senile priest allowed to call out in the service all the time Right. Why is that pastor so controlling from the front, trying to tell people to sit down and shut up? Basically, the idea that you would have someone, re- you know, having memorized scripture, standing up to end a service with it and right. then go into a proposal. <laughs> Never in a high church service would that be allowed right, right. during the liturgy, not ever. Right. And then that the that they're standing up and boldly, finally speaking their truth and saying cryptic things that, I mean, right. Aster is a genius 
for putting everything together in that moment because the information she needed to come to her correct conclusions was not clearly supplied by the other characters. And I just think there we've been mostly sincere in our relationships throughout this screenplay. There could have been another impetus, even if you wanted to have the ridiculous proposal. Maybe he decided to propose without anyone else knowing and he interrupted the service with it. And that creates her crisis where then Ellie and uh, whatever his name is come clean to her. But no, right. it'll have to happen in the service in front of the whole town. I guess everybody goes to church. What a religious town is this? Right. That I, such, yeah. such that Ellie is a notorious atheist. Right. You know, that anyone would even know. Who cares about all that? That's my own church drama. No, but no, I noticed all that too. And in fact, I used to be overly picky of movies getting religion right. And then I kind of let that go. But now this, and, and to a lesser extent, another movie that we watched this week, um, I'll bring it up again, but this church was insane. It, they sing Holy, Holy, Holy out of a hymn book, but they have confession booths and they have a right. robed priest named Father Shanley. And but yeah, it's, it's obvious, but it, it kind of is my issue with the writing in general this isn't this is a Sundance darling. This is like an indie filmmaker who, you know, people yeah. were excited for her to make another movie. And some of them some of it's charming and some of the dialogue is compelling and the characters are really lovable. And then you have contrivance and stuff that is sub sitcom. Um, and it all, it, I think it tries to use kind of a, tw the, the, the twee surface of things, the, the, the kind of style and attitude to just push through those things. But I don't think it earned this, anything quite that goofy. The other thing is that's weird is I feel like it just needed to be rewritten and tidied up. Cause isn't there a scene early on where Paul, I don't know if it's supposed to be that Paul is dumb, but, or, but she basically says she's into Aster and he catches on. But then there's a scene later where he's like, wait, what you're gay. And I didn't understand how those two scenes were like two different moments in time. I had to stop and think about that first scene that you mentioned, because I thought that that was his moment of realization about her. But then I thought about what he said and he was just like, you can do this and you don't even care. And what he's saying, like, you don't care for her. And yet this right. flows for you. I so it was care, supposed to be a and, fake out. You think that yeah, he's figuring it out, but he didn't. That's how I took it. It could have been clearer, but I can see that, that you're probably right. I wished that if this was based at all on the filmmaker's own experience, I don't, I, maybe it was or wasn't, but you'd think if you want to throw religion into it, you're coming from a place of knowledge. One thing I did appreciate, though, about the inclusion is that an underlying religious background might have motivated each of these characters in different ways to act the way they did. And yet mm -hmm. I like that the film didn't address it or make it about that religious angst. It was just sort of the location and the yeah. arena where some of this played out. And I was fine with that. And I even liked it until that one scene that right. just did yeah. not, could not work. Right. I did even jot down a line exchange that I liked from the, um, from the, the bathing scene, the swimming hole scene where uh, Ellie says, uh, I'm an atheist. And Aster says, that must be great. That must be nice. Mm -hmm. And she says, no, it's not. It's lonely. Um, then they said more, but I thought that was the profound portion of, of their conversation. Um, yeah, an interesting movie worth worth watching, I'd say. 
Oh yeah, I I liked all three of the characters. I felt, I mean, not they are not totally fleshed out, but rather than just having the central protagonist be fleshed out and everybody else being kind of like a caricature, as so often happens in these kinds of movies, that wasn't the case. They were, yeah, and they were all likable, right? But um, so this is it's a lovely little movie, and yeah. its opening moments filmed in the music classrooms of Pearl River High School where my wife is a music teacher. Yeah, I wondered where it was supposed to be taking place because it seemed Pacific Northwesty to me. Or New Englandy. But yeah. yeah. Like Squamish is to me totally the kind of a town we have around here. It says that it was shot in Pearl River Piermont and uh then other places that I forgot about because they're not local to me. But Yeah, but not intended to me in any way to be versions of Pearl River or Piermont. No, not at all. And I mean, if Pearl, they've got train tracks and stuff, but totally different kind. We have train tracks too, but they not even all of the school is Pearl River. The auditorium is totally a different place. So it's yeah, just I noticed different. that they really messed up the train tracks. Yeah, took me out of the movie. Yeah. Anyway, that's the half of it. Oh, I have one more one more thing to say. If just like a freight train comes through twice a day. Do passenger trains also stop at that station periodically? Which in in the movie? Yeah, because to me, like passenger right. routes are passenger routes, and freight routes are freight. No, they're routes. different tracks. Yeah, yeah. and like if you, unless you have like a daily stop for passengers, but that's like her packing right. up her life and going to college or whatever from this freight station. Right. Yeah, it just seemed like a convenience thing. Just like they, I think there's a level of understanding of church and train stations that is right. Church and train stations. (laughs) Got to get them right. There's only one track to heaven. Are you on it? That quote is attributed to Dan Hammer. (laughs) All right. Um, Well, Dan, you made me watch The Lodge, so you get to talk (laughs) about it. I just feel like you didn't like this movie for some reason. So The Lodge is a 2019 psychological horror film directed by Veronica Franz and Severin Fiala. And I became aware of it through a series of Twitter posts where people I don't know were saying that you should catch The Lodge because it was their favorite horror movie of 2019. So I thought, what else am I doing? And so I watched it. And this is a story of a family in crisis where the mother dies by suicide and there are two kids, one a teen boy and one a younger girl. And the father is trying to get them into better relationship with his fiance, wants them to kind of be a family. And so they head out for a holiday at a remote lodge that the family owns. And the dad has to leave the kids alone with the fiance and they're cold and they're hostile to her, but then strange happenings start going on in the lodge. And we're not sure if it is her madness or if the kids are pranking her or if some sort of spiritual malevolence is going on because this fiance was famously the only survivor of a death cult mass suicide years ago. And so we're not sure if the ghosts of this are haunting her. And wildness ensues in the lodge. So I liked it better than you did, I guess. I didn't love it. 
I thought it was an okay way to spend the time. I think that the plot and where it actually ended up going was pretty cruel. And I mean, to say it's unbelievable, I mean, it's a psychological horror film. Of course, it's a little bit unbelievable. But I don't think that uh, the actions of the kids were at all true to their characters or true to life. And it was a convenience of the plot. And I didn't understand the ending either. But before we go into all of these specifics, what did you think? Well, um, yeah. So it bears mentioning, before I get into my own thoughts, that this movie shares several... It shares a couple, a few elements similar to uh, Ari Aster's movies, specifically kind of a prelude or or a prologue with similar themes to Midsummer, and then many elements throughout that are starkly similar to things, to elements of, um, to elements in hereditary. Thank you. Yeah. And, um, that's okay. I, I don't, I don't think anyone's actually accused them of ripping anything off. I think it's parallel thinking. I think the dollhouse stuff is so specific that it just must've been part of their vision, you know, and it works in a different way. Uh, it's, but that's an interesting aspect of this movie because not just because, oh, look, it's similar things, but because it then begs thematic comparisons. And so much like uh, both of those movies, this movie is a kind of uh, rumination on grief and, and loss and pain. But I don't while Astor's movies are brutal and challenging to watch, I feel like there's a humanity in them. And that there's something cathartic or at least something uh, that you that you come away with. It's not simply an exercise in dread and nihilism. Uh, and I feel like this movie is so harsh and so cruel and so despairing. Um, you know that I have a thing about kids in movies that I, I didn't used to have ever since I have a kid. I don't like to see kids either like lied to or manipulated or... or, or uh, emotionally abused in movies and these kids go are emotionally abused by the the screenwriters and directors yeah um yeah they go through this horrible loss at the beginning of the movie and to the point where this girl who's so similar in age to my little girl is just cr- crying and screaming and saying a line that i don't want to it's very spoilery but it just that killed me to make a kid say and she's a pretty good actress this child um uh, and then, as you say, the movie, for the purposes of creating this nightmare in the lodge, it positions them in such a way and uses them and puts uh, behaviors in them to further the plot that are just, if these characters don't get a break, they are hurt, they make bad decisions out of that hurt, and then it comes back on them in horror and blood and insanity and i just i like horror movies i just like them to have uh, they can be brutal they can be nasty but they should have something to say and i don't know what i was meant to take away the other thing is the potential stepmom character riley keogh as grace um she's good actress she her character is interesting but i don't know i this is my, well, I don't know. Should I throw back to you on the kids before we talk about her? Cause I want to talk about the cult and, okay. and the ending, but let's talk about yeah, the kids. Let's talk about the kids for a second. So initially before they even go to the lodge, the, uh, their mother, Alicia Silverstone, no less is dropping the kids off with their dad at his house. 
And the dad makes a remark like, she's not here. You know, you can be at ease. This fiance is not here. And then announces his intention to, to marry her. And I think this sounds like a reasonable thing. I don't know how long the parents have been separated, but it's long enough that dad has a new house and is either living with this girlfriend or whatever else that slowly and surely everyone should be coming to terms with what's happened to their family. If this was a case of, oh, he moved out last week and now he's announcing a marriage, they didn't make that timeline clear that it was especially hasty. I felt right. like these kids have been introduced to this woman and you're you're going to be processing your own stuff of your parents getting divorced and they know a little bit of the circumstances. The audience didn't get to know the circumstances of the of the divorce. But then the mom goes off and dies by suicide. And that brings up, of course, a whole that's a whole other trauma for the kids to endure. I I can totally understand those things at the same time that they just so hate this new fiance because of it or that they blame her for their mom's death that that's really what's what's the word i'm looking for it's really a miss something of their emotions yeah miscalibration or yeah yeah she doesn't deserve that and they're also mad at their dad like we're not going to this lodge and i'm just like well your mother has died and that's something for you to process and grieve and life is going to go on with you under the care of your dad. And there's this woman in his life and they're going to be married. And he mentioned that the wedding would be in September. But then on Thanksgiving, they're still not married because obviously they've put off the wedding because of the tragedy. And I'm thinking like one step at a time here, this is your family. So this idea that they can just be cold and hateful and cruel to this woman who really had nothing to do with all that's gone wrong for them. I, yeah. I felt like the kids were in the wrong and needed some therapy and needed some, not not like violent discipline, but I'm just saying like, hey, get it together. Yeah, absolutely. I just feel like kids are more resilient than that usually and would by this point in the story of their parents' separation and the loss of their mother might be opening up a little bit more, might right. be accepting it. Not, they were still in the denial phase of even the divorce long after their mo mother has died. Right. I think you're right that we don't get enough background because at one point they're in their father's office researching him right. and researching Grace. And I thought that something was going to spring out of that. We were going to find out that he's manipulative, that he somehow has been taking advantage of his patients as a psychologist or whatever his deal is, but it didn't go anywhere. It was just them. The kids were just like, this won't stand and we have to do whatever we can to nip this in the bud. And the movie just kind of makes those motivations rock, rock solid. And that's it. We're marching forward mm -hmm. and this is it. And then the movie just kind of barrels on towards uh, conflict and madness based on that. And it didn't feel, yeah, it, it didn't feel organic or, or, or real or right. And it just made me feel again, I don't I don't sympathize with the children in the horrible things they decide to do. But to me, that felt like writing, whereas right. the tragedy and the and the loss and the grief felt more real. And that just I don't know what the movie wants to say about grief and loss and and then the cult stuff. So this is where I feel like there's another uh, kind of disconnect 
where the portrayal of this cult, it's basically Heaven's Gate. It's um, commit suicide in mass, take your shoes off and put a blanket over your head. But they add this kind of very generic stuff about repent and putting sin on their mouths. Mm -hmm. And, and, Again, I think maybe it was a little more egregious in the half of it in terms of not quite, you know, needing a uh, really needing a religion consultant. But I don't know that someone who was in kind of a, a fundy eschatology cult would be triggered by a portrait of Mary. Right. And one of the things that happens. And it's not so fearsome. Nobody thinks they're in a cult when they're in it. So right. I feel like even the act of dying together is envisioned as something something that brings you ecstasy, something that you've lost your mind, really, and you're full of joy. This idea of darkness and sin and repent, to, right. to me, is not part of the motivation to get people to follow you down that path. Yeah, it feels like lazy writing from someone who's like, oh, cult, religion, Christianity, they talk about, you know, I can see a cult based on that kind of stuff, but this didn't, this just felt thrown together. And then Grace's behavior as it all, so the kids essentially gaslight her and torment her and hide her meds. Mm-hmm. And so she begins to immediately fall back into, um, which again is also strange because she doesn't just fall back into her, whatever her mental issues are. She literally just goes back and like, she becomes, you'd think someone who survived a cult. I don't know. She, she immediately assumes the role of the lead. She's like restarting this cult and she's the leader. Right. right. Why would that be? And I didn't get why the kids, even as they are trying to manipulate her would put themselves in such discomfort and danger because they were in the middle of nowhere in a snowstorm with nowhere to get out of that. Um, robbing them of heat and electricity and food and and taking away someone's meds i think an older child would know better than to do something like that if they knew the person was mentally ill and possibly unstable and dangerous without them yeah you want to be trapped with your younger sibling in a house there there's there's no human on earth who feels that way And the little girl, the the boy has a chip on his shoulder, so I guess he's supposed to be the the, the ringleader, and and these are his ideas. But the little girl, she seems downright sweet, and she even has a few moments with Grace where they kind of connect a little bit. It doesn't. I don't understand why Mia goes along with Aiden to the extent that she does into the into the insane ending events of the movie, especially when she's so devout. The Right, the movie goes right. out of its way to show her as being a devout young Christian. But that's lost by the end of the movie. Oh, yeah. And you'd think it would play into things given what, yeah. That's where I thought it was going to go, that there was right. going to be some sort of a bonding or catharsis because we've got this little girl who is devout and then we've got this um, caretaker who was traumatized as a child by religion that maybe there'd be some meeting in the middle. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like there was too much exposition and not enough all at once because wouldn't this have been a less complicated scenario that the parents were together and out of nowhere, mom dies by suicide. And within a week, dad brings in a woman who they've never heard of and says they're getting married. And then the kids decide we need to research this person and they find what they find. And then we're off. Right. Like to me, that would that would make their motivation of 
resistance to her presence a lot more clear. It would um, the resistance to taking a holiday together as a new family would be a lot more clear. Mm-hmm. And it was not at all the way the events lay out in in the movie as it is. Yeah, and then in the end, um, it's just pretty grim. Yeah. Their, their father's murdered in front of them. They are tied up, and it looks like this uh, this lunatic is going to uh, force them to kill themselves or, or something. They're gonna. There looks like the end of the road for all of them in the lodge. Someone and, needed to come out on top. The same way as you've got the smile at the end of every Ari Aster movie, that the person that you've kind of followed and cared about, even in some twisted way, comes yeah. out on top. Right. Yeah, these were not recognizable humans to me. Yeah. The the yeah. way they responded to their circumstances was not how to me a normal person would react or respond. And all all this being said, I'm you know, we're kind of shitting on the movie. I liked the sense of dread. I liked the look of it. I liked following the story until I saw what was going on and then I was less intrigued for sure. I just think there was a making of something much better here. Yeah. These are European filmmakers. They're Austrian. And European horror is very different. Um, you know, it doesn't have the same. I think in America, horror always has to have some kind of a human thematic anchor to it. Whereas mm-hmm. I think they're much more happy to just have a fantasia of of terror in in, in in it can just be kind of a poem a visual poem about terrible things in in europe and that's enough for them that's uh, true. i don't know if it's cultural but that might be the case well like british theater too is so cold and dark and cruel sometimes yeah. in even just the way it's staged and americans don't like that as much right all right well how would you rank those first three movies this week dan um, the first three. Oh, I, I liked the half of it best, mm-hmm. and probably just for the fun of it, I liked Josie and the Pussycats, and I probably mm-hmm. rank Lodge last. But that doesn't mean that I hated it. Right, right. I'd probably swap uh, the half. I, 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 it's weird. Here I am on the record saying I love Josie and the Pussycats. I didn't love it, but I had the most fun with it for sure. Yeah. But uh, yeah, no, they're all. They're, every one of these movies is worth watching if you can handle something like the Lodge. It's uh, it's worth thinking about talking about. It's it's a piece of work. Um, all three of the movies are, are are worth watching this week. So they are all movies that were made. That's right. They continue to exist. You can stream their digital packets over your internet service provider at your convenience. All right. Uh, let's take a little break, and we'll come back and talk about gods and monsters. Welcome back. And uh, Dan, this week's movie was your suggestion. It's a little bit of a format glitch. You can uh, talk to us about Gods and Monsters. Yeah, the format glitch is just that I hadn't seen it right. before recently. It's something. It's Gods and Monsters. It's a 98 period drama film. 
It uh, recounts partly fictionalized last days of film director James Whale, who's played by Ian McKellen. And the other primary characters are Lynn Redgrave as Hannah, his housekeeper and kind of long-term friend and confidant, and Brendan Fraser as Clayton Boone, who is a new gardener in whom Whale initially takes an interest, but then they forge a friendship. It is written and directed by Bill Condon. And this is a movie that I was very aware of. I feel like I started getting into the Oscars late 90s, maybe the year after um, all the indies. So that's the Titanic year. And then this would be the year after that? No. the po- It's the Shakespeare in Love year. And I remember Lynn Redgrave winning the Golden Globe that year for supporting actress, kind of putting it on my radar that it existed. And she didn't end up winning the Oscar, though it did win for screenplay. And I've just always thought I should watch that movie. I should watch that movie. And whenever I've had the opportunity, I just never watched that movie. And I don't know why I never watched it. It seems like it would be totally the art house pedigreed movie that I would have loved in those days. But I just never did. So I came across it on whatever streaming platform. And I thought, I want to watch Gods and Monsters. And I thought there was a lot going on in it that I wanted to talk about. So it was enough for me to suggest we uh, allow for this little rule breaking. And yeah, um, suggest we suggest we both watch it. And I believe this was your first watch as well. Yes, it was. Yeah, this movie, similarly on my radar, I knew about it. But it was kind of distant and for some whatever reason i i always conflate it with gods and generals the, it's a little uh, different Civil war movie and i just kind of thought that it i didn't know about and it was a biopic i didn't know about the frankenstein element i just knew that it, it was and that it was prestigious and had some award buzz and uh and since you know becoming aware of bill condon and he's he's a, a good filmmaker pretty good track record and finding out this was one of his movies just like you happy to stumble upon an excuse to finally watch it I love the world that the film is set in. I like whenever we get a little glimpse into Hollywood queerness that was known but not known and certainly not uh, put into any films at the time that anyone could recognize. To see these characters who lived who they were, even when it brought about loss for them, and the complexities of those world what is the what is what is the difference between being yourself as a gay man in this time period and just being a pervert <laughs> or a predator <laughs> because yeah. in one sense if you're at a pool party where everyone has decided to be lewd and pervy then i guess it's okay but in the whole of life that behavior is completely unacceptable and so where where is that line and where was it for these characters i find it fascinating the drawing sessions where um, Whale wants to sketch Clayton and it kind of becomes sharing uh, stories from their past with one another, which is where they kind of forge a friendship. I I thought those were wonderful, fascinating sequences. And in the end, who was this Clayton character? Because he seemed like he had some sort of repression or... Um, uncertainty about his own sexuality. I didn't think he was gay or something, but 
he hung around a lot longer than I think a usual heterosexual man might have and put up with more than he might have. And I lo- just loved the madness of the, not the final sequence, but close to the final sequence where mm-hmm. Whale almost assaults. I mean, assaults, he does assault yeah. him, but I don't mean that he almost assaults him. I mean, his intention almost is to get him to kill him in a way. Right. And so we have this strange fetishizing of a friend being a catalyst of how he wants to no longer exist. And I think that Condon was really successful in putting the Frankenstein film themes, uh, superimposing them onto these characters' relationships. I'm not sure that I do, although I do admire the movie very much. I think that actually might be one of the elements that doesn't, that I had the biggest trouble with. Oh, just really? penetrating. Yeah. What, like trying to shoot, I felt like this Frankenstein stuff was shoehorned in because that's the most recognizable bit of this man's legacy. But I didn't quite follow the idea of he needs a Frankenstein. Like, I, I mean, I guess I get it. It might be related to one of my other issues, though. Let me let me praise it a little bit before I get into another issue, though. Um, I think Condon is is great for this material. His script is very uh, alive. It feels like theater, kind of. It feels like it would work mm-hmm. well oh, in yeah. theater. Um, and McKellen is just, he seems so delighted to be playing this part. Yeah, that he's his, great. His effervescence and his joy of doing, getting to play this part and just chew it up and to be able to do it in a time where he didn't have to like, they could be very blunt about those things you're talking about, which are basically like his, his weird pervy old man behavior, Mm -hmm. but they don't have to judge it. They just let it kind of be what it is. Um, But I think to me, Fraser's the weak point. I don't know that he's cast well. And in Ebert's review in which he refers to, whale as a homosexual several times <laughs> yeah uh, he has a similar thought that he doesn't know if fraser's the right and i'm not getting this from him i was already thinking this before i read i don't i like brendan fraser i suppose he can be charming and, and funny but this is i i don't know if it's the writing of his character or his performance that i have trouble with i know who whale is i get it and i guess i kind i don't know if the problem is with the concept of of boone as a a Frankenstein or with the way it's played. Yeah, I feel like there's a little bit of mixing of the metaphor because even the way they style his hair, he's meant to look Frankenstein-y from the beginning. I see Whale as more of the Frankenstein in his own mind. Mm-hmm. And like the final scene where Frankenstein is having dinner with the blind man and it can work because he's blind. Right. I kind of saw Boone more in that way of this person who's kind of blind to the thing that makes whale horrifying to the rest of the world and he's able to find a friend in him because he can't see the horror that other people see yeah but i think that on the surface it would seem like well gods and monsters you know the, the the doctors consider themselves the gods and the monsters the monster i that's an interesting idea i don't know how explicit it was or easy to to grasp but maybe i was just too dense or i i was very confused and it felt like they were just trying to make the the frankenstein metaphor work and i'm like i don't even, was that even that important to james whale you know it's just a job a lucky job he got that ended up being the thing he's remembered for 
Sure. I mean, um, it's important to the screenplay. I took right. I took Fraser as being the gods and mm. McKellen as being the monster. Interesting. I like that. E- yeah. Even though clearly, you know, they have Brendan Fraser Fraser walking around like Frankenstein and styled right. like Frankenstein. Like I get that. That's where I'm saying it's mixed. But to me, he was kind of like this angel from heaven, basically, mm. who was able to see whale in an intimate way and not shrink back in terror. Yeah. I didn't necessarily appreciate the epilogue with Boone married with a kid, basically saying, I knew that guy. Like it, it, it indicates that the arc of the movie was his and I didn't need to know where he went. I agree with that. I feel like that was to make the primarily straight audience more comfortable yeah. to solidify that. Oh, just so you know, he was straight the whole time, you know, and he never <laughs> did anything. And because to me, the friend, you know, written on that thing, he might have looked at that alone soon after in another way and made the connection of what the nature of the relationship was to Whale. Right. Rather rather than saddle him with a with a family. And yeah, yeah. I agree with you on the ending. An excellent movie, though. I really like. I think of something like Ed Wood, which I think is a great movie, but it's so much less complicated than this. Yeah. Because it takes an equally complicated person and just turns it into a a straight up comedy where everything's fine and silly and you don't have to worry about anything and everything's packaged up for you. And it's Tim Burton, you know, his vision. This feels like it's, it's chewing on a lot more and Condon has a lot more things to say, even though he's not going to say them all right out. And I don't know I like this kind of movie better now, whereas back in the day, I would have probably preferred the Ed Wood kind of approach. But it doesn't feel, and I I didn't even know about the Frankenstein stuff or who James Whale was, which means that they didn't, again, I'm not aware of how the movie was marketed, but I think I would have been aware of it if it was the Frankenstein movie that talks about the making of Frankenstein. You know, they didn't lean into that no, too much. Started- what did you think of Lynn Redgrave? Um, I mean, she's great, and the character was entertaining, and it was kind of sweet. I was kind of surprised that such a histrionic, almost cartoon performance was, you know, part of the awards conversation. But it's not a bad performance; it's just a weird character. It is a weird character. I think it would work better on stage. I mean, she's she's giving a stage performance essentially, right? In, in a movie. And I was sort of surprised that that was such a big part of the awards conversation that year. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, I know you didn't like Fraser as much. I liked him better than I liked her, I think. Really? I don't know. I've, I got a, I've always had a thing for Brendan Fraser. Oh, okay. I, it, might, it might just be a personal thing. Right. But, you know, like, who would, who would they get? Yeah, who would, who, would they, who would they get? Channing Tatum today? I mean, who, who would that yeah. be? Yeah. The but big Channing Tatum can like beefcake. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's a lot better actor. I think that maybe if Clayton had been fleshed out a little bit more, if we could have seen a, more of his inner life, he does yeah. share a bit, but where we could understand exactly why after coming back from, um, I mean, I guess not war, but trying to reenter life. He, he's trying to restart his life in some way that if he's just trying to keep his head down and do his job, why did he get involved with this man? It wasn't money. What, what What's going on in him? 
And I don't think the movie answers that very adequately. No, it doesn't. And he has those scenes in the bar and the the girl that he's, you know, messed around with in the past and he gets defensive and they pick on him. But that you need background before that. Like, who is this guy? What is he struggling with? You meet him in the very beginning of the movie living in this rundown trailer and he just seems like a man of the earth working dude. You don't learn anything about him. Right. He calls home at some point, doesn't he? Does he call? He, he remind to, me. He calls home and has a strained conversation with his mother, and his father doesn't want to speak to him. Am I conflating something else with this? Yeah, you might. Uh, I mean, you might be right about that. I don't remember that detail, but it could have happened. Yeah, so we don't get any information on on why what's going on there, and and why he might, why his life might need a boost by this interaction with this uh, this old gentleman. Gay straight friendship is its own thing and kind of exists on its own level, and. To me, he, he not violated, it's not the word, he transgressed those boundaries pretty significantly, I yeah. felt. And I felt like... Whale did should, or, or... No, or, um, Clayton did. Mm-hmm. And I felt like the movie should have explained that a little bit more. Right. Because it's one thing to think, oh, I'm your gardener. I know you're going to pay me extra if I'll pose for you. Okay, I'll make a few bucks. But then... the he was getting intimate with whale as well in his sharing and vulnerability and two friends who know each other for a long time might be, you know, do that level of sharing. But when, without any question, you're kind of dressing up obviously to be the eye candy of this gay man at a party. Yeah. You know, you know what you're doing, you know what this looks like, you know what everybody's thinking and you're okay with it. Right. You're living into something that you say you're not. You know, you don't right. go home with someone and take off all your clothes and spend the night with them and then right. naked put on a mask. I mean, <laughs> these are things that, that straight <laughs> friends of gay men do not do. Sure. And yet here he <laughs> yeah. is. Right. Um, another thing this movie does that I think is it's very hard to pull off the character being triggered into memory by some kind of visual cue. I think that's overdone and overwrought and not a great device. But something in this movie between the performance of McKellen and the fact that he was, you know, on medication, that he'd had a stroke, there's kind of an excuse for it, for all mm-hmm. of his nostalgia and his looking back on his life. I felt like that stuff was more successful. Yeah. Um, and and the, the the little hints of things in his past and the, the First World War and the, the, the nightmare of that and the 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 love that he lost and all that which i thought was very moving yeah and i liked that the love was kind of lost through the war and not necessarily through repression or hate mm-hmm. i i liked that i liked the uh fantasy sequence where he kind of goes and lies down among the dead yeah and, i liked at that the a end lot. i thought I that was really look- effective yes i thought that was fantastic but then clayton wakes up it was his dream yeah and i thought that was a little strange yeah I think it could be unclear whether Clayton is dreaming it or if he's dreaming something that spiritually is actually happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It might have been, it might have been two things at once. It might have been the fulfillment of that kind of thread. And then also uh, Clayton's realization, oh, he wants me to kill him. <laughs> like he, right. he, he's ready to not be alive anymore. His story right. is complete. Right. I thought where he was begging him to kill him was horrific in the style of Frankenstein almost. Yeah, it seemed yeah. like mad scientisty, you know, lightning flashing, scary right. person in a mask killing. 
I just, yeah, that scene from, from the whale side, that scene is harrowing and sad and pathetic. I don't know. Again, I think we're, we're, we're on different uh, sides here about Fraser, just Mm -hmm. the way he plays it. He's so guarded and like, but then the way he just takes off his clothes and is like, he's, he's like, he's throwing him a bone and he's like, I want to, I want to help you. But then he's also surly. I just felt like his side of the scene, I didn't get. Yeah. I think it needed some more explanation or it needed some change. I think it was almost an impossible character to play as written. Yeah. Yeah. But a really interesting movie. And again, I'm really glad that this kind of a movie gets made and that, you know, the, a story like this um, that isn't cheapened into just the making of Frankenstein or here's this crazy, weird, gross mm-hmm. old man that it, he kind of, you know, it, it is a very nice kind of elegy um, for this guy's life who probably otherwise wouldn't have had this kind of a public attention paid to his legacy. Right. So thumbs up. Yeah, I mean, it's a. I like that it's about queerness, though that's not central to the story. It's inextricable from it. Uh, and I guess the 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 premise of the podcast is we're, we're discovering this over time anyway. This is less about seeing whether movies hold up, and it's more about revisiting the late '90s and early 2000s. That's where we that's when up. we liked life a little bit better in right. a lot of ways. <laughs> yes. Yeah, 20 years ago when things were a little simpler. Um. Are we both right, just grieving 9-11? Right, yeah. <laughs> right. Well, was, yeah, there was just one 9-11. Now we're having 9-11s every week. Right. And uh, numerically speaking. If we could just go back and reverse that first one. Right. Back to the Josie and the Pussycats days. Oh. Uh, any remaining thoughts on Gods and Monsters, Stan? Never. Never, ever again. Never to speak of it again. <laughs> All right. I guess this has been our show. This has been our podcast. We've been Dan and Josh. You can follow us both on Twitter and Letterboxd. The show is at Holds Up Pod on Twitter. Our music, as always, is by Jonah Rapino. And we will see you guys next week. Dan, um, we're going to watch Rushmore for next week. Great. I'm going to make you watch Rushmore again. Again. Second time. I think I'm going to enjoy it more this time. Good. Well, we'll see. We'll see how I feel. It's been a long time. Mm -hmm. Uh, All right. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Well, I'd kind of given up on this in my mind. <laughs> okay. Maybe it'll so, be interesting. So I don't know if we my could be heart... done if you want to. No, it's totally it. fine. I got nothing to do. Just my uh, my heart's not in it now. <laughs> okay. Let's see if we can tell the difference. Uh, yeah. I'll be fucked <laughs> as ever. That, that took me a moment. So there's your hits. <laughs> I'm more flustered than ever. You actively don't care. This should be uh, the ultimate holds up podcast.